0: Father, thank you for your love and kindness and your grace and even being able to gather like this. While it's a command for us to gather together as the body of Christ, it's a joy, and you are obviously wise in knowing that this is a good thing for your people to gather together, to share burdens, and to rejoice together as well, to challenge one another. What a, what a great, great blessing the local church is. And thank you for allowing us to be able to be part of this local church. Help me to be clear now as I speak in preaching your word and reading your scripture. And Lord, give us attentive minds. Make us like the psalmist who said, Open our eyes so that we may behold wonderful things from your law. In Jesus' name, amen. If you haven't already turned to Romans chapter 8, I want to invite you to turn to Romans 8 where we are going to read about the greatest certainty known to humanity. The greatest certainty known to humanity is the great and perfect work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. Salvation is sure, salvation is secure, and we can be certain of that. We can be certain of that not because of a feeling, though it makes me feel a certain way, we can be certain of that not because of an impression, though it makes an impression on us. We can be certain of salvation in Christ because of this great declaration from God. I promise you this will be the best part of the sermon, reading the passage. Okay? This is going to be the best part. I will do my best to read it clearly. Uh, I'm going to encourage you to do your best to, uh, to comprehend it as we read but these are some of the most splendid and certain words known to mankind, and rightfully so. Please now hear the reading of God's Word. Romans 8.31 What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son That neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? We say amen. Yes. That couldn't be clearer It couldn't be surer. It couldn't be bolder as far as a declaration of what is true for us as believers in Christ. And I love those words because of what they're saying. Don't you? That is just fantastic that we can know this and God has made it that clear to us that there is absolute sureness of salvation in Christ. I love that. And I'm not kidding when I say that will be the best part of the sermon. But I am compelled. I am compelled to say, let's look deeper. I am compelled to say, let's look, look for opportunity, opportunity for exhortation and challenge and comfort. Let's look deeper so that, that we can grasp this text better. I like to correct myself and say, no, let's look deeper so this text can grasp us better so that our joy can be what it needs to be, our joy in Christ. And and as we see Christ for who He is, and we understand even better, and we have opportunity to be taken even deeper into His sure work on our behalf, our level of joy will increase that we have such a great Savior. And as our level of joy increases, what happens? We see Christ as He really is, and Christ is exalted the way He should be exalted. And that's my aim, and that's my goal this morning, and I can't wait to sort of say, let's hold hands and jump in together so that we might even better appreciate this great Christ. As we look at this passage, I think you'll be able to see with me there really are two emphases. There are two angles, if you would, two points of emphasis that, that come through loud and clear. In the first half of this passage, the emphasis really is on the justice of God. And then the second half of the passage, the emphasis is on the love of God. Now, please make it clear in your minds. I'm not suggesting that they're mutually exclusive. They're together. This is artificial for me to say this. But clearly, there's an emphasis on justice first. There's an emphasis on love second. And they're complementing each other. But both both of those are designed to underscore and to highlight and to embolden the one reality, and that is that if you are a believer in Christ you have sureness in Christ you have security in Christ and his work on your behalf is unstoppable and so we'll look at those two different angles the justice of God brings assurance Romans 8:31 to 34 the love of God brings assurance Romans 8:35 to 39 and no doubt they complement each other let's talk about the justice of God bringing assurance first That doesn't even sound weird to you? If you're very familiar with the Bible at all, and I suggest to you that the justice of God brings you great assurance, you're probably thinking, uh, how? We're not going to get to it right away, but as we work our way through the passage, even as believers, because of the work of Christ, justice brings us assurance. Pretty profound, as we'll see. But keep that in mind. We'll find it shortly. Let's jump in and look at the first question in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? It's the rhetorical question. What should we say to these things? And, and first, let's acknowledge that these things is probably in reference to the verses that came just before. What should we say to verses like 29 and 30 where it says, For those whom He foreknew, a synonym would be foreloved before time began. He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. What do you say to that? How about 30? And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. What shall we say to these things is what He's saying. How do you respond to that? And we looked at those things in detail. But he's really wanting us to engage our minds and reflect. What do you say to those things? Maybe he even has in mind not just those two verses and not just three verses, 828. Maybe he's even thinking about all the way back to Romans 1 to 8. Because this is one of those crescendo high points. What shall we say to these things? What should we say to the fact that in Romans 1 to 3 we we, we saw that we are utterly sinful and there's no way that we could earn the favor of God because everything we do is somehow tainted with sin. And then we learn that God justifies the ungodly. Then we learn that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That if we trust in Christ and Christ alone, we'll be credited with all of His perfect righteousness and be fit for heaven. What should we say to these things? How should we respond to such things as that? And then he goes on to say in verse 31, If God is for us, who can be against us? That's what we should say. No doubt Romans 8, 29 and 30 can be summarized by saying, God is for us. There are those people who God is for Four clearly read Romans eight twenty-eight and twenty-nine and thirty. Read Romans one to eight. It's clear. Who could be against us? It's almost like a ridiculous question. You know, a lot of people actually could be against us, <laughs> as a matter of fact. But the idea is, it's hopeless for them. They can't take what God has given to you away. They can't be broken. This salvation in Christ we're learning about is unstoppable. Christ is unstoppable. If God is for us, who can be against us? Think about even that, that great question. Since this is church, you know, we say the word God quite a bit. <laughs> and, and, rightfully so. But, you know, we, we say it so much that we don't even think about it. Just, just think about the reality of, of God. If God, who is all wise, all powerful, all-knowing, who is a decreeing God, who loves sinners, who is a justifying God. If God, this God, is for us, who could be against us? Nobody. It's impossible. It's ridiculous. Secure, safe, sure is the emphasis. It's great. It's a strong, powerful text. Well he goes on to say in verse thirty two, unpacking this 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 answer to the question He no doubt this is He the God who is for us, who did not spare his own Son, but gave him, that is the Son, up for us all. How will he, the Father, not also with him the Son, graciously give us all things? if that's not one of your favorite bible verses it needs to be I mean that that is good it is white hot good that is that is heavy I mean that that is no watered down verse look at that verse that is a stout verse That that, that is a weighty verse. He who did not spare His own Son. How do we get security? How How do we know that if God is for us, nobody can be against us? Why? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? What's the implied answer? It's an impossibility. He's arguing from the greater to the lesser. The greatest sacrifice, the greatest gift imaginable is God giving His own unique Son to atone for our sins. That's the greatest. And if that's true, surely, no matter what, absolutely, He's going to give us all things. And in this context, the all things, no doubt, is in reference to the ultimate getting us to the ultimate, getting us to our final destination. Remember, we learned about it earlier in Romans 8, 29 and 30. Glorification, to be conformed to the image of His Son. That's the ultimate of all, all ultimates. What's the ultimate good in Romans chapter 8, if you read through the whole chapter? Ultimate good is one day we will see Christ, we'll be made like Christ. Romans eight thirty-two is splendid. If he gave his son for you, you can bank on this. He will give you all good things. Hallelujah. You know? It just doesn't get any better than that. It it just does not get any better than that. And I know I say that a lot. This is one of those high points in Scripture. Scripture. I want to read it and reread it and meditate on it and ask you to do the same thing. The deepest demonstration of the love of God is the giving of His Son. And if He did that for us, the other stuff is in the bank. Now, I think that's just a glance. I think if you do a little bit more than glancing, it gets even better. If you gaze, did, did you notice, as you looked at 8.32, the completeness of it? Did you notice sort of the, 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 the wholeness of the package? Look again, if you would. He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us. All right, he gives the son. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things implied answer is he will no matter what absolutely that's the uh, implied answer there in other words he gave his son therefore guaranteed fact all good things will come including glorification. My friends who have an Arminian view of the atonement don't like this verse. If you don't know what that means, good. We can still be friends. But we're talking about an atonement that atones. It doesn't make atonement possible. We're talking about a propitiation that propitiates. We're talking about a redemption that redeems. It doesn't make redemption possible. Those he dies for will get every good gift. You know, I look to a lot of different places for assurance. I look to my life because my life should be evidence of new life in Christ. That's 1 John. That's appropriate. For assurance, I also look to things like predestination. We learned about that in Romans eight, twenty nine and thirty. I, I get assurance from that. You know what? God started this thing. I didn't, so I'm locked in. I look to those things for assurance, but you know where else I look to for assurance? It's lit up behind me. You know, if we could make if I could make it flash right now, I would. There's a big hint in the back of the room, you know. I look to the cross for assurance. How do I know that I'm going to get to glory? How do I know that it's going to happen? Well, it's part of God's great plan. We learned that in Romans 8, 29 and 30. I know and we're also learning it in Romans 8, 32 because His plan there is consistent with His plan in Romans 8, 29 and 30. The cross might be more significant and more important than you ever dreamed. Who could be against me? makes me think of John chapter 10 when Jesus said, I lay my life down for the sheep. And then he says, I will lose none of them. Strong, secure, sure. I love it. I don't deserve any of it. <laughs> Neither do you. <laughs> Why did God choose to do it this way? I don't know. But I think it would be really helpful if we looked long and hard and worshipfully at the cross. And we thought deeply about these things. He didn't spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. How will we not also with Him graciously give us all things? Well, He's going to. It's a fact. Well, speaking of my Arminian friends, um, I'm going to mention a word that's offensive to some Arminians now, but it's in the passage, so it's not my fault. Look at verse 33. Verse 33 says... Seeing that He's so for us, even in the cross. And then this rhetorical question comes in 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? I didn't have the words it's in there. Who's He talking about even when He said He gave Himself up for us all? And then He says, who shall give any charge against God's elect? And the implied answer is nobody or no thing. <laughs> It can't be done. Why? Because God has given us His Son and with His Son He's given us every good gift. So who could ever possibly, effectively, bring a charge against God's elect? He's implying that it cannot happen. And it says in verse 33 as well, this is my favorite part now to the justice part, it is God who justifies this is logic on fire, by the way. If you think the Bible is not... Illo- uh, you don't think it's logical, then you're not logical. <laughs> I mean, th- 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 this is a nice, tight-knit argument that complements the rest of Romans. Notice with me, if you would. Who shall bring a ch- any charge against God's elect in light of what happened on the cross? That's impossible. It doesn't, can't happen. But then he says in verse 33, it is God who justifies. Okay, the legal verbiage should, should be capturing our attention. Who can bring a charge against God's elect? Courtroom scene? Who is it that can come up to God and say, you know what, I know that Pat Abendroth. And I'm going to bring a charge against that Pat Abendroth because I know he is a spiritual villain. And whoever was bringing that charge would be right. Read Romans 1-3. to Right? Satan is called the accuser of the brethren. This is what he does, by the way, the book of Revelation. Not only that, my own heart accuses me of this kind of thing because I know that I am a spiritual villain. But here it says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? How could anybody bring a charge that's going to stick? The answer is, it's an absolute, utter impossibility because look what it says, it is God who justifies This is God's courtroom. And so somebody comes into God's courtroom to God and says, Pat Abendroth doesn't deserve to be saved. Pat Abendroth is a sinner. Pat Abendroth is a spiritual villain. Pat Abendroth is not a good person. Pat Abendroth's good works are like filthy rags, quoting Bible verses. They're going into God's courtroom arguing a case against me. Hello, duh, it's God's courtroom. And as the verse says, it is God who justifies the point is, he knows. He knows what rebels we are. And he, not based upon our good works or our, anything that we do, based upon the perfect work of Christ, he justifies the ungodly. And so it's a, it's a moot point. It's, it's, it's nonsense. In fact, it's, a, it's an insult to God. Because God knows all too well what a big fat sinner I am. Right? Right? He knows what a sinner you are. Why did He send His Son to the cross? Why did He send Jesus into this world? To obey God's law perfectly, to fulfill all righteousness, not because He needed to, but because we're incapable of it and we don't want to. Not only that, why did He go to the cross and absorb the just wrath of God? Why did He rise again from the dead bringing new life for us? Because we are sinners. But the Bible, we've been learning in Romans, if we trust in Him, in the God who justifies the ungodly, we have peace with God. The requirement's been met. Righteousness has been secured for us by the perfect work of Christ. And this is what's so logical about this. This is what is so amazing about this. This is why Please don't check out. Please think. Think logically, even as you look at the passage. This is why now justice is something we like as Christians. And now justice, the justice of God, gives us assurance. You see, before, justice? No way, Jose! I don't want justice! That's getting what I deserve, and, and, and I know what I deserve. No, 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 no. I want grace, right? We talk that way all the time. That's a good way to talk, but you know, make no mistake about it. God is a just God, and He does deal justly with sin, or He's a compromiser. It's called the cross. Justice is a good thing. You know what? Let's talk about the justice of God all day long. Because if we talk about the justice of God from a biblical Roman's Christian vantage point, we're talking about Christ, the just for the unjust, right? Second Corinthians chapter 5, we're talking about Christ, the perfect one who fulfilled all righteousness. Righteousness and justice are the same word, by the way, uh, same original word. I love to think about the justice of God. Because God declares sinners righteous, even though we're not because of his great son. Boy, come into God's courtroom and say, that Pat is a real loser. It's as if God can say, tell me something I don't know, but my son is great. And my son is so great that he justifies the ungodly or based upon his work, I justify the ungodly. So get out of my courtroom. Right? How awesome is that? Sure, secure. Man, I love justice because of grace through the atoning work of Christ and God's mercy. It's a great, great emphasis for us to see. There's nothing illogical about how God saves people. Romans 4, 5, He justifies the ungodly. As we've seen before, God is the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is just red-hot awesome. God's salvation through Christ is unstoppable. Unstoppable. Let me challenge you a little bit here before we move on to the next phase. So why don't you have joy if you don't have joy? You know, Why don't you have boldness if you don't have boldness? Why don't you have assurance if you don't have assurance? Why don't you find yourself giving great, unrestrained, maximized praise to God if you don't? doesn't get any surer than this your heart may accuse you satan may accuse you others may accuse you untouchable because his perfect work is unstoppable pretty good huh come on show me some love (laughs) it just doesn't get any better it's awesome I just want so badly to live here, okay? I just want so badly to set deep roots here, and I want you to put deep roots in here too. You, you don't need to, to have, you know, five easy ways to deal with difficult circumstances in life. It's not easy anyway. Somebody's trying to hoodwink you. But what we do need is to, to, is to, to start owning verses like Romans 8.32, Start owning chapters like Romans 8 and let those roots go down in deep and build strong foundations where we meditate upon these things and we see Christ for who He is and we go deep as far as understanding these things. And then all of a sudden, come hell or high water. Unstoppable. Unshakable secure, sure, not because I'm a good person or a bad person or I'm not doing a good enough job doing good enough things. It's there. It's there. It's Christ. It changes everything. It changes absolutely everything. Are we to the second part yet? <laughs> I'm having way too much fun on the first part. <laughs> we're not even to the second part. I thought we were. Look at verse 34. It begs the question, Who is to condemn? Who is to condemn? That's a natural contrast between the God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Implied answer is no one, but he doesn't have to just imply it. Look at verse 34. Christ Jesus is the one who died. And he can leave it at that. There's no condemnation because of the perfect death of Christ. But he doesn't leave it at that. Let's just pile on here more. He says more than that who was raised, and you can stop the argument there, but he doesn't stop, who is at the right hand of God, Psalm 110, verse 1, who indeed is interceding for us. You know, it's as if it can't be a stronger argument, because we have the death of Christ, oh, but we have the resurrection of Christ, and not only that, we have Christ at the right hand of the Father, who is interceding, he's arguing our case for us. So with all of those accusations, Jesus can just keep saying, I gave myself for him, and therefore every good gift is his or hers. How could it get any better? This is like stacking the deck. <laughs> I mean, this is, it just doesn't get any stronger than this. Christ intercedes for us? How about Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25? Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. I mean, what is Christ doing over and over again? At least that's the picture of what He's doing. He is arguing our case. Sure, secure, absolute. What shall we say to these things? (laughs) I say praise God for these things and live in light of what it says Jesus Jesus Christ saves to the uttermost Let's move on to the second angle okay so that's justice we now like justice okay justice is good because God deals justly because of the work of Christ so that we can be benefactors according to His grace. Now, then we look at a different camera angle, still complementing, similar idea. Obviously, God's love is what led Him to send His Son, but now the focus is on love, and we'll see this in the remaining verses as we work through it. Look what it says in verse 35, if you would, with me. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword... No, 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 right? And isn't it great that He's now bringing the love of the Son into all of this so we don't have an unbiblical view of Christ's work? It wasn't that the Father loved us so He sent the Son against the Son's will or desire. It's not that at all. Sometimes people say the Bible teaches cosmic child abuse. Uh, no. Read Philippians chapter 2. The Son humbled Himself and took on the form of a man he came here voluntarily right and here we have Christ loved us so yes the father loves us but the son loves us as well Ephesians chapter 5 verse 2 Christ loved us and gave himself up for us so now we've got the father involved we've got the son involved and they're doing the same thing they're on the same team it's applied by the power of the spirit which we learned earlier in Romans chapter 8 this is magnificent And he gives us this this sample list. I think it's probably a sample. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, or danger, or sword. There's nothing that can happen in your life physically that can take this away from you. There's nothing that can happen. I don't know about you, but I kind of think, well, sometimes Paul is like the ivory tower guy. They name churches after him. Right? They do stained glass pictures of him, even though they have no idea what he looked like. But still, come on. Well, maybe in God's providence, that's why we have other things in the Bible telling us about what he went through. See, when he says this, the Roman Christians who were originally getting the letter would not be able to say, well, who are you to talk? You know? You're an apostle. No he's saying what he's saying on purpose. You could jot down 2 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 23 where it says with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, countless beatings, often near death, 5 times I received at the hands of the Jews Forty lashes lest one. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, and days from and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles. Danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. So we have the nakedness there. 2 Corinthians 12.10, For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. Shall famine, nakedness, sword, can any of these separate us from the love of Christ? I'm here to tell you, the Apostle Paul could say, no, 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 no. Unstoppable, the love of Christ is. Unshakable. Can't happen. What's interesting too, I think it's important for us to, to keep in our minds, none of these things... Circumstantially, caused the Apostle Paul to then question the love of Christ, either. I think that's probably in part, maybe almost in whole, because he had a basic Bible knowledge. He had a basic understanding of the Old Testament and how believers are persecuted. He had an understanding of what Jesus himself taught that in this world you'll have trouble. He had a basic understanding of those things. He also had an understanding that the perfect work of Christ that secures our salvation is not talking about making us healthy, wealthy, and wise in this world. He understood that. So having all of those bad things happen to him didn't cause him to say, Well, you know what? Jesus must not love me. And I do think, by the way, that's why he puts verse 36 in here, to give us a reminder of basic Bible knowledge. If you look at your Bible, the flow is broken. It goes from 35 to 37. A question is asked in 35, and in 37, the answer is given. The answer is no. Verse 36 is just kind of thrown in there. And I think what he's doing is he's taking a sampling from the Old Testament of a passage that just teaches what we should all know, and that is that as followers of God, life can be pretty rough but you don't question the sincerity of God. You don't question the love of Christ. This is just basic stuff that we know by now. So if you don't know that, it's a little confusing because it breaks up the flow. But here's what he says in verse 36. As it is written, Psalm forty-four twenty-two, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Sheep are persecuted, you know? Sheep walk around in the wilderness with bullseyes, right? Right? As the wolves salivate, you know, they're, they're in trouble. They face hardship and hard times. I think that's why he's quoting that verse here. But it doesn't cause him to call God's, question, God's love into question, Christ's love into question. No, not at all. In fact, he picks up the, question, the answer to the question. So 35 asks the question. Verse 37, he resumes his argument. Look at verse 37. No, in all these things, all of those hardships of 35, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Is Christ. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We are super victors, as the Greek New Testament would have us to to know it. We are huper nike, super Nike, huper nike. Nike means victory, Nike means conquest, conquering, where we get our Nikes. This is better than Air Jordan, though. We are super, we are huper nike, super Nikes. Try, uh, Try some of those on at Athlete's Foot. As Christians, because of what Christ has done and we face all of this junk in life, he's saying because of Christ, through Christ, we are super Nikes. We are super victors. There's nothing that that can change the outcome of the game, so to speak. It is set, it is finished, and it is victory at the end, no matter what, is the image that he's using. It's a great image. It's It's a great one borrowed from the world of sports. That's us in Christ. Now do notice, he's not saying, he's not suggesting in the context that the idea here is, now that we're in Christ, we're super conquerors. That means nothing physically will ever harm us. Because that's sometimes how we use that verse. So let's put it on a plaque and no matter what, we're going to win the game, guys, because we're huperniques. See my shoes? (laughs) No matter what, I'm going to beat this disease because of Jesus Christ and I've got... Nike on my side because of Christ. That doesn't make any sense in light of this context because he just got done talking about all of the bad things circumstantially. The point is, you can have all of those bad things circumstantially, even sword, even death, and nothing, nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Spiritual victory is unstoppable in Christ. And that's better than physical victory anyway. I love the the, the commitment and the devotion and just the stoked up level of conviction. I wonder if you can have this kind of conviction. Look at 38. The Apostle Paul says, For I am sure... Even perfect tense in the original text. I am sure... that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, probably holy or fallen angels, angels or demons, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, probably human authorities then since He already covered the angelic, nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You want to know what my personal convictions are, he says, in light of all this truth about God's great justice being satisfied, God's great love being upon us? I am convinced that absolutely nothing can touch me. Nothing. And he uses all these different images. Height, depth, anything, everything, you know, as far as it goes, time, everything. Can't do it. I'm having an early senior moment here. I'm not forgetting, but I'm just thinking of old things. You guys ever remember, was it Robert Conrad that did the Duracell battery ad? Anybody remember that? Robert Conrad was just a tough guy. Was he the Baba Black Sheep guy? I'm trying to appeal to the older audience. (laughs) I just remember him in a leather coat, you know, tough Robert Conrad, and he had the Duracell battery there. I dare you to knock it off. You know, <laughs> and he was just so. I dare you! Didn't he do that? You know what? That's how I feel right now. <laughs> I dare you! Can't be done. Unstoppable. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Sure, the accusations come. It never, ever, ever can stick. really really rich and good it's unstoppable so why do you worry if you worry back to those questions why don't you have joy in your life that transcends is above circumstances why don't you ever do anything bold in the name of Jesus Christ it would make sense that we would do these things. We are freed up, if you will, to take the risk. Because nobody's going to knock the battery off. It's not a battery anyway. Horatio- Horatius Bonar whose parents ought to be disciplined for naming their son such a thing. He's a great writer from the 1800s. And interestingly enough, I didn't plan all this. Isaac Watts is one of my favorites because he has such good theology in his writing of songs. And Bonar has great theology too. And he wrote a song in response to our passage. And it sounds a little bit 1800s, I'll grant you that but it really is good and rich and it's appropriate. As believers through the ages learn these things and we try to find ourselves getting steeped in these things, we want to respond. Listen to this hymn that he wrote and if it's not your cup of tea, I will uh, offer you an alternative. Blessed be God, our God, who gave for us His well-beloved Son the gift of gifts, all other gifts in one. Blessed be God, our God. What will He not bestow who freely gave this mighty gift unbought, unmerited, unheeded, and unsought? What will He not bestow? Romans 8.32, right? Oh, good. He spared not His Son. Tis this that silences each rising fear. Tis this that bids the hard thought Disappear. He spared not His Son. Who shall condemn us now? Since Christ has died and risen and gone above for us to plead at the right hand of love, who shall condemn us now? Tis God that justifies. Who shall recall the pardon or the grace? Or who the broken chain of guilt replaced? Tis God that justifies. And then the Hupernike part. The victory is ours. For us in might came forth the mighty one. For us he fought the fight, the triumph won. The victory is ours. Good stuff. If that's not your cup of tea, the 21st century version of that, you can go home and go to YouTube and type in unstoppable by voice, and you'll get the rap version. (laughs) I thought of that song over and over again as I studied this passage, and that's why I keep saying it in this sermon, and that's why it's in the sermon title. Unstoppable. 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 It's the work of Christ on our behalf, and so we are sure and we are secure because if He has given His Son for us, He will most definitely, most certainly, no matter what, give us every good gift. What do you think of that? It's really good. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this morning and for a great time together considering very serious things that are the very things that cause us great joy and that allow us to to make it through, quite frankly, anything. And so we rejoice at the reality that we have an unstoppable Savior who is gracious and kind And who loves us and how His love is settled. His love was set upon us even at the cross. And we are rejoicing in Your name because of these great things. May we be a church family who finds ourselves looking again and again and again and again to the great love of Christ for us. And may we be so amazed by Your great grace and Your great work on our behalf that there would be a rich and abundant outflow of response from us, a response of gratitude, a response of wanting to serve Jesus Christ, the living King, a response that would want to be faithful ambassadors of Christ, speaking well of Him and living well because of Him, because of His unstoppable work of redemption. In Jesus' name, Amen.